You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. I want to welcome everyone to the Theology Mom podcast, and I want to say happy Wednesday to you wherever you are. Uh, it's a very hot day here in Southern California, and we're going to be talking tonight in this teaching about the question that I'm seeing many of my friends wrestle with right now. Does the story of Zacchaeus provide a biblical warrant for reparations? And I hope that this will be a helpful teaching as we step through the story of Zacchaeus tonight in some detail, as well as questions about reparations. Now, there is a growing chorus of people in the culture calling for reparations. And this would include some of the former Democratic presidential candidates. Uh, Many of them have put forth ideas based on some kind of reparations tax There is a famous article by a black thinker that I would recommend. Uh, He's a gentleman named Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he had an article in The Atlantic a few years ago. Here's a screen cap of that. And it is a very important and thoughtful argument. It's called The Case for Reparations. It's definitely worth taking the time to read and consider. It's a very long piece But it is a great kind of lay-level introduction into the case for reparations that many people are putting forward right now. Now, the main idea behind reparations is that unpaid slave labor helped to build the American economy. And this, over time, has created a vast wealth that African-Americans were barred from sharing in for a very long time. And there is a historical warrant behind reparations uh, that not everybody is aware of. So I'm going to just kind of briefly summarize that here. General Sherman, who is uh, notoriously famous for burning from Atlanta to the sea um, as he was taking the South the Deep South, late in the Civil War in 1865, he made this statement about 40 acres and a mule for every former slave at the end of the Civil War. And this was thought at the time uh, to kind of represent what it would take for a former slave to be able to build a new life and support themselves. And you can go read more about this in the georgiaencyclopedia.org. This gives a little summary of what went into this 40 acres and a mule thought. And the thought was that land that was confiscated from plantation owners at the end of the war would be redistributed to former slaves. And President Abraham Lincoln and the Congress actually approved this plan And there were 40,000 freedmen in the South who actually started to plant and build on this land. However, within months of Lincoln's assassination, uh, President Johnson took over the presidency and Johnson actually rescinded the order and he returned the land to its former owners. And Congress did make another attempt at uh, compensation to former slaves, but Johnson vetoed it. So there was this thought 
at the end of the Civil War of providing, uh, uh, making a provision for former slaves through land and a mule. And a mule would sort of be um, a, a critical piece of equipment, if you will, for working that land and providing a pathway to self-sustenance. Now, one way of conceiving of reparations, and there are many different reparations plans, and so I don't want to paint it as if there's only one plan because there just isn't, but this is one that is very popular, and it is to conceive of reparations by assigning an estimated value to the cost of an acre of land in 1865, which was about $10 an acre, so 40 acres uh, divided among a family of four comes to about uh, 10 acres a person, and it would be about $10 for for each of the four, or $100 for each of the 4 million uh, former slaves. And so then you kind of extrapolate from that number and, and compounding interest and inflation, you might assign a present day value to that um, 40 acres and a mule idea of some people have, have put it at $80,000 a person and assuming roughly 30 million descendants of, of ex-slaves. And you can read all about how they arrive at these numbers um, online. Now, obviously there's all kinds of tricky things embedded in this scenario. You know, how would, would people have to prove their, their family tree that, they're related to former slaves. Would their um, how far back would you go? Uh, what about black immigrants who came after the Civil War? Would they qualify? What about blacks who are millionaires, like Oprah Winfrey? Is she getting part of this reparations money? Um, would they qualify? It gets it's very messy. But the idea behind this is to try to establish some rules and to quantify. Um, some sort of compensation for slavery. But I don't think that this messiness is necessarily a reason to dismiss it. And again, there are other models of, of reparations. One model that I've heard of is to focus an effort on maybe rehabbing certain geographical areas that still seem to be suffering from the long-term effects of redlining, for example. But reparations isn't just a secular or political idea. It's also a growing belief among evangelical Christians that white Christians need to tangibly demonstrate their repentance of the sins of their ancestors by paying back money that they consider that was stolen from the descendants of black slaves. So let me show you some evidence from prominent voices in evangelicalism who are advancing this view. Now, I'm going to show you a post here in just a minute that was made a few years ago on Facebook by the Jude 3 Project. Now, before I show you the post, and just in case you aren't familiar with the Jude 3 Project, they are a ministry that tries to bring apologetics into black churches. And I actually think that this endeavor is a hugely important project because the black church does have its own unique set of obstacles to the Christian faith and questions about is Christianity of a white man's religion is a, is a big one. They need solid scholarship to pre present evidences for the faith to black young people. And Jude 3 Project has, has done some really good work in the past doing that. 
But the Jude 3 Project also platforms Christian thought leaders who advocate for reparations. So here's a post from their uh, Facebook page from 2016, and it talks about, it's a quote, um, not only reconciliation or racial reconciliation, but also reparations, restoration, and repayment are central to the gospel. And as a responsibility, we've inherited by choosing to follow Christ. And so you notice that in this quote, there, there is sort of this call and connection for, to, to link reparations and the gospel. Now, along these lines, we're going to hear another voice in this space, which is Akemeni Uwan. This is an article from a small town newspaper where she was quoted. Now, Uwan is a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary, a reformed seminary, a fairly well, when I was in seminary, uh, Westminster was was a fairly conservative seminary. So this is this is a post, uh, a news article uh, from the Frederick Post News, which I must think is like a um, a local newspaper. But it's a story about reparations, and we're going to scroll down here a bit. This is a story about Princeton Seminary actually providing free tuition to black students as as sort of a form of reparations. So I'm going to scroll down here a bit. All right, here we go. Gospel call for reparations. The entire gospel message of the Bible is a reparation, said Akemeni Uwan, a public theologian and co-host of the Truth's Table podcast. The Christian church should be leading the reparations movement. The original sin in the Bible of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden led to a break between humanity and God. And the sins of humans that would follow detailed in the Bible all came from the original sin, but were repaired in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is how she's get hooking together the gospel and reparations. Is this I have this idea of God repairing our sin? And so Jesus died on the cross to repair the break between God and humanity. Uan said that is the reparation. So then she uses that as kind of a biblical foundation for the idea of repentance. And she says quite readily, if I scroll down here a bit, that reparations would require a sacrifice, Uwan said, likely in the form of money. So that's that's what she's talking about. The reluctance of white Christians to discuss or advocate for reparations may come down to a selfishness and a narrow view of the gospel. It is to focus on an individual salvation that can cause blindness to social realities. Now, this is what we see a lot in the Christian reparations idea is a hooking together first of reparations in the gospel and then talking about, well, your view of the gospel is too narrow. It mostly focuses on individualism. Let's continue to try to make our case more recently. This was a tweet from just a few weeks ago from Pastor Charlie Dates, who's a pastor in Chicago of a fairly sizable church. He says, I'm not sure there can be reconciliation without reparations. Anybody serious about racial reconciliation has to likewise be serious about correcting the 250 plus year economic disadvantage inflicted on black Americans. Now, somebody in response to this tweet asked dates what reparations would look like. And so I thought his response was, was again, interesting Remember, Uwan was talking about money. Here in Dates' tweet, he says, college with no cost, student loan forgiveness, 
homestead provisions, land to live on. So that's similar to the Sherman's field order, forgivable home loans, seed money to start a business. That's sort of the mule idea, tax incentives and breaks. And number five is sort of open-ended. We could go on and on. So uh, you can go back and, and look at all the responses there to Dates's tweet, but his tweet led to actually an entire blog post by Brian Loritz, who's the author of several popular books by Christian publishers. And this is just a few of his books. This one, The Dad Difference, just came out, but a very popular one that we've had a number of people ask us about at the Center for Biblical Unity is Right Color, Wrong Culture. Um, and I think there's one more, maybe, yeah, Insider Outsiders, another very famous book. And he has a book with some comments on Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters, letters to a Birmingham jail. So Loritz is a pretty big name. He's also a member of the Board of Trustees at Biola University and does a lot of speaking for them in chapel. And he um, is a pastor. And so he's a he's a pretty big name. And he he responded with an entire blog post that I want to look at in some detail throughout this teaching. So this is just a, a screen cap of the blog post here. It's called At the Table, Reparations and the Spirit of the Gospel. Now, thankfully, I downloaded screenshots of this post. Uh, it was actually removed a few days later, but I think it's an important post because it reflects what I'm seeing promoted with increasing frequency among evangelicals. So I want to look at the opening uh, paragraph here. Um, he talks about Charlie Dates' tweet. He says, recently, my friend and little brother in ministry, Pastor Charlie Dates, tweeted about the need for reparations and reconciliation. And what he saw was that the, the comments, and you can go look on Twitter for yourself to, to vet this, that there was sort of this black and white divide among Christians in terms of how they responded to the tweet. But I thought his his description here was interesting. This divide, and I'm pretty sure he's referring to white people, is a reminder of how poorly the body of Christ has been discipled into our new communal humanity. And he's really saying, what he's saying here is that an awful lot of white Christians don't understand the gospel. And so he's going to kind of break that down for us in some detail. So let's go on to the next slide. Now, I appreciate this qualification that Loritz gives here. He says, Please don't misunderstand me as saying that reparations are essential for me or all other minorities as being a must for ethnic unity. I appreciate that. He's, he's saying that there's some room there, like we're not going to make unity between Christians um, an absolute contingent on reparations. But he does want to seek to explore how the God, spirit of the gospel may move any barriers to collective relational reconciliation between blacks and whites. So he he is clearly trying to hook reparations and the gospel together. And the, his purpose is to challenge white people to consider his case. I have one more little slide here that we've got there. And this is where we get to our Zacchaeus um, conversation that we're going to have tonight. There is no clearer example of this than Zacchaeus's spirit-induced commitment to reparations in Luke 19. Zacchaeus, he calls him Zach, is the chief tax collector. This position entailed systemic injustice. So he's tying in a, a contemporary word. It's not a biblical word of systemic injustice, but he's, he's tying it into an idea to go the extra mile and offer reparations. And Jesus responds 
by affirming his salvation. So the story of Zacchaeus is put forward very frequently as the key biblical passage in support of reparations. So we're going to start talking about Luke chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. I'm going to go verse by verse. And my really my hope, quite honestly, in these teachings is sometimes they take a little long. I'm not like a big one verse kind of gal. I really want to teach people how to properly handle the word. And we can't do that if we're only looking at one verse. We've got to look at the whole context. So, you know, if you're looking for a really quick answer, this is not the stream for you. But if you're really wanting to learn how to how to interpret scripture, I'm going to walk us through some things here together tonight. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 19. So if you want to grab your Bible, you can turn there. And I'm going to look at Bible Gateway in the NIV translation. Now, verse one says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through on his way to Jerusalem is where he was going. So this is a very important thing to notice because we want to get some um, geographical context. Here's a little Bible tip. If you're reading scripture, always have a map nearby. Take the time to look it up. So here's a little map of Israel at the time of Jesus. And hopefully we have it. There we go. So we can see here, Jerusalem is sort of underlined there at near the bottom uh, in the middle. You can see, and you can see if you look directly up and to the right, you can see Jericho. It's not that far away. So there's Jericho. And then right underneath there is Jerusalem. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but he goes through Jericho. Now, Jesus had just encountered a poor blind man who was begging on the road as he was walking into the city of Jericho at the end of Luke chapter 18. So as he's walking into the city, Jesus heals this blind beggar and that man uh, becomes a disciple of Jesus. And this is going to be an important point because I think that Luke has these two stories next to each other for a reason. But our tendency is to start reading in Luke chapter 19. But we always have to remember these chapter numbers are completely man-made. They're totally arbitrary. So I think that Luke wants the reader to contrast the poor beggar who was out on the road at the end of Luke 18 with Zacchaeus, this very wealthy man at the beginning of Luke chapter 19. Okay, so let's continue with uh, verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. Okay, now Luke introduces us to our main character right here. And he wants us to know something very important about Zacchaeus. He wants us to know that he's the chief tax collector. Now he's telling us with this little detail, he's kind of the chief sinner in the, in the town. He's, he's telling us, that he's the chief tax collector and that he's wealthy. Now, Zacchaeus is not your average person. He isn't some poor waif off the street like the blind man, someone to have compassion on. He's not a compassionate character in the story. He's the one who supervised the other tax collectors in his area. He's the chief tax collector. He might be the crook in chief, okay? He was probably very shrewd. 
he probably had good management skills because he was supervising other people. He had to likely interact with the Romans quite a bit. So he had to have some level of political savvy. And he was also looked upon by the fellow Jews as being kind of a traitor and being unclean because he was interacting with Gentiles so much. But he was a person of stature. He, he would have probably easily been known in the town, possibly recognizable. It was possible that everyone in the town knew who he was because he was the chief tax collector. It's possible that if Jesus had come through Jericho before, he might have even known who Zacchaeus was. But what Luke wants us to know by telling us that he was the chief tax collector is that he was seen by his peers in the town. that he was, he was a thief. He was a corrupt man. And that his wealth was likely rooted in what we call dirty money. Okay? Okay, let's go on to the next verse. Let's look at verse, chapter, uh, verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, just for fun, I looked up what a picture of this sycamore fig tree might have looked like. Uh, This is actually a picture of one in Jericho, and it's kind of a a fun little thing. Uh, He would have climbed a tree sort of like this to look to, to see Jesus over the crowd. Now, about this business of Zacchaeus being short, (laughs) it's kind of interesting. I I actually looked this up in the Greek, and it seems like another possible translation might be that he was young. Um, We see here in the verse, and I have a little Greek transliteration here of the passage. Uh, He was short. And if you look at this word, little or small, but it can also mean young in age, you can see there. So it could be that he was short, or it could be that he was a young man. Both translations would, would be warranted, but he did climb the tree. So maybe we, we kind of lean toward the translation that he was of short stature. Not a big deal, but it is sort of an interesting detail that Luke wants us to know for some reason. Now, there's another important detail that Luke wants us to know, and that is that Zacchaeus wants to investigate Jesus. He's He's actively pursuing Jesus. He wants to meet Jesus or at least hear Jesus. And this makes me think that Zacchaeus is looking for a change in his life. You don't start climbing a tree to look at an itinerant rabbi who's coming into town uh, for no reason. I think he's, he's taking some initiative here to try to find out more about Jesus. And I think it's also interesting that Zacchaeus's name means pure in Hebrew. And I think what Luke is trying to do in the story of Zacchaeus, in part, is to contrast the story of the rich young ruler, which is also in Luke chapter 18. If we were to go to the previous chapter, right before Jesus heals the blind beggar on the road into Jericho, there's this interchange between the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, and Jesus. And I think that, again, we're supposed to kind of contrast Zacchaeus with the blind man, and we're also supposed to contrast Zacchaeus with the rich young ruler. Both Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler were wealthy men, but one was self-righteous and would not give up his possessions, while the other ends up giving 
half his possessions to the poor, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's go back to verse five here in Luke chapter 19. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, hospitality is a huge cultural value in the Middle Eastern culture, even today. So I do wonder what the protocol was for an itinerant rabbi to invite himself over to a rich man's house. Maybe that was an honor. Maybe it was weird. I don't know. I really couldn't find anything on that, but I was curious. But either way, we can tell that Zacchaeus was excited about the prospect of having Jesus come. All right, let's go back to uh, verse seven here. It says, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, again, Luke is is emphasizing Zacchaeus was a sinner, (laughs) but I want you to notice who's upset here. It's not the Jewish leaders. Normally, they're kind of the, the villains of the story, if you will. But this time, it's not the Jewish leaders. It's the people. It's, it's, it's the normal, regular, everyday people. In other words, the, it's what I call concern trolls, you know, and, and, and they're the ones that are concerned for Jesus, that he's polluting himself by hanging out with the chief sinner of the town. It's the regular people. They're, dis- they're disturbed about, about what Jesus is doing here. Now, the word sinner here is, is, is referring to the reality that Zacchaeus doesn't keep the moral, the Mosaic law. He, he's looked upon as, as someone who is far from God. He is seen as being ritually unclean, most likely because of his dealings with the Romans. He's also seen as a thief. So he breaks God's law. He, he is not a holy person. <laughs> his life does not depict God's standards of justice. So why is Jesus hanging out with this guy? He's a corrupt government official who's likely ripped off all of his neighbors. Okay, let's go. Let's continue with the story in in, uh, verse eight. It says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, this is interesting. Because the NIV translation is a little, a little vague here. So we're going to go back to the Greek here for a minute and look at verse 8 in, in the Greek. And we're going to notice something about what is said. Um, it says Zacchaeus as he stood there. The, the idea here is that it's almost like he's, he's stopping in his tracks. You know, his, his, his neighbors have just kind of called him out, trying to figure out what response he's going to give. And it, it says, look. Half of what I own, Lord, I will give to the poor. And the idea here is that he's already doing it. The verb tense here is not a future tense, even though it, it looks like it. It's, it's actually a present tense. It's like he's telling Jesus, I'm not like that. I, I'm not a cheater. Uh, maybe he overheard what the people were saying about him. And he wants Jesus to know, I, I'm not like that. He's letting us know that, that he's, he's already going against the stereotype about tax collectors. He's wanting Jesus to know that he understands he isn't merely interested in hospitality and having Jesus over. He wants Jesus to know like, hey, I really want to lead a holy life. I want to live in such a way 
that I abide by God's justice standards and, and what I read in the Mosaic law. And when we think about like, well, why was he, why did he choose, you know, giving away half of his possessions to the poor? Why is he doing that? We don't really know. It's possible. One possible explanation is that in Exodus chapter 30, it talks about every time there was a census, people were supposed to pay um, half a shekel to the kind of the temple tax. You could see here at the end of verse 13, this half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. And it, it was a way of paying a temple tax. And it says that one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. So when you're counted in the census, you kind of pay this, this tax almost as a, as a thank you to God for your life. And, and you pay this half a shekel. Now, some people have, have speculated, well, maybe he, he chose 50%. He takes this 50% ransom for his life to the extreme. Maybe he's so incredibly grateful for Jesus's forgiveness. He wants to give away half of everything he owns to the poor. Like, wow, that's, that's some amazing, amazing levels of gratitude of seeing the grace of God toward him. But then there's a second thing. It's not just enough that he's giving away half of his money. He's, he's wanting to repay those that he's cheated times four. And in Exodus chapter 22, it says this, if anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they're stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. So this law about thieves paying back is a really big component of the reparations argument. We call this restitution where in God's law, the people were expected to pay back the people that they had uh, stolen from times two. Well, again, Zacchaeus goes even far beyond that. He says, I'm going to pay back those I cheated times four. Um, and so instead of paying double the amount, he pays quadruple the amount. He's so remorseful for his sin that he he doubles what he wants to pay back his neighbor. It's it's, it's really um, quite remarkable. Some have speculated that maybe this verse in 2 Samuel chapter 12 refers to why he doubles it. This is the um, exchange between King David and, and the prophet Nathan about Bathsheba. And, and Nathan tells David this story of a man stealing a lamb. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who stole this lamb must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity on his neighbor. In other words, he had no compassion. He just stole the neighbor's property. And so possibly Zacchaeus paid four times the amount because he recognized that he didn't regard his neighbors with pity or compassion. He was just stealing from them. And so he follows in the example of of this passage about giving back fourfold. Who knows? We don't know. But those are just some some little glimpses into the Old Testament that may have influenced Zacchaeus's thoughts and why he chose these numbers. Okay, but again, we we want to understand that his big desire, his heart's desire, was to he wanted to live a holy life. He wanted to obey Jesus. He wanted to show that he was someone who valued 
God's justice system, a God's standard of justice. All right, let's finish out the story here and read verses 9 and 10. It says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now Jesus makes this pronouncement that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. And that's kind of in keeping with the Jewish understanding of households. Uh, We see this in the book of Acts when salvation comes to the household of Cornelius or the household of the Philippian jailer. There's a very common ancient idea of kind of this, this, if something comes into the house, it comes to everyone in the house. And as the father goes, so does the home. And as the home goes, so does the the local institutions or or the local church. It's an important lesson for us to understand today that I think as patriarchy is under attack in our culture, the importance of the men in in the ancient context that as the men went, so went the household. And that became the building blocks of the church. That's a little aside. So Jesus describes Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham. And this is supposed to make us as the readers think about the question, well, who are the real and authentic children of Abraham? And Jesus came to to restore the inheritance of the kingdom of God that was had been lost due to Israel's unfaithfulness under the old covenant. And now he's clarifying who the rightful inheritors are of that kingdom. So when he, when Jesus proclaims that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, What he is saying is this man is a true heir of the kingdom. So so even though his neighbors thought he was all, he he was corrupt, he was the sinner in chief in the town. Jesus is now making a different proclamation over him. He's saying, no, this is a true son of Abraham. So the Jews thought they were the real children of Abraham. But but Jesus is coming and saying, no, this person you think is outside the covenant is actually in the covenant. He's actually a true son of Abraham. Why? Because he's obedient to the father's words. He's believing in me as the Messiah and he's obeying the laws. He's obeying what righteousness looks like. Zacchaeus demonstrates his identity as a true son by obeying God's standard of justice. He's not earning his salvation, but he's demonstrating his gratitude for it and the reality of the transformation that that comes to his heart. So here we have, let's go back to our context. This is so important. We have the Zacchaeus story. But right before that, we had the story of the poor blind beggar being healed as Jesus is walking into Jericho. So now we have both the poor man and the rich man both saved back to back, very different stories of salvation, but both saved, both coming into the kingdom, both becoming true sons of Abraham, both make the decision to join the movement that seeks to destroy the gulf that divided them socially. If they were look at each other in a worldly way, these two men have nothing in common, the blind beggar and the chief tax collector. They have nothing socially in common. Everything socially divides them, okay? But how is it that they both become children of Abraham? How is it that they both come into the kingdom? By Jesus dealing with their sin. 
Sin is the one problem that all humans have in common. And Jesus is the one solution to that problem. Okay, so now we're going to go into kind of the third movement of the teaching here. Uh, now that we have sort of a solid understanding of Zacchaeus under our belt, we've, we've looked at the context, we've gone in and looked at the details, we've pulled back out and looked at the larger context, we compared and contrasted Zacchaeus with the blind beggar and with the rich young ruler. So now let's return to our big question of, does the story of Zacchaeus provide a biblical warrant for reparations? Okay, so we're going to go back to the blog post by Brian Loritz. And we're going to look at a few more highlights here. He has this analogy. He says, let's imagine a black person and a white person sit down across from each other at the table of the gospel. And the discussion is reparations. Both acknowledge a huge historic wrong and both agree that the centuries old wrong continues to reverberate to this day. So, If we were to think about that for a minute, it might be a look at things like redlining, that even though the practice of redlining has has stopped on paper, it has an effect that still reverberates today. What would the gospel demand? Okay, now I want us to pay attention here. The guiding principles of the gospel is love for God and neighbor, along with a commitment to lay down rights among others. Okay. I underlined this part. It's very important. The guiding principles of the gospel is love for God and neighbor. Now, if we were in a classroom, I would ask for a little audience participation. What is wrong with that statement? What is, what is incorrect about that statement? The guiding principles of the gospel is love for God and neighbor. If we were in a classroom, I'd say, okay, who knows? <laughs> Does anyone have any insights or any thoughts about this? Loving God and loving your neighbor is law, not gospel. That is how we summarize God's law. That is the summary of the law. It is not the gospel. The gospel is is what Jesus does for us on the cross so that we may have a relationship, a covenant relationship with the Father. There's a fundamental but very common misidentification of the gospel that's happening here. It's actually conflating law and gospel. And this is a major problem in, that I see in the conversation about reparations from, from many very well-meaning Christians. It's very common to conflate these two things. I'm going to go to the next slide because it kind of helps to, to clarify this a bit more. He says, now I fully understand the pushback of this story. Zacchaeus was the one who did wrong. White people today have not owned slaves. And I'm sure we can have robust exchanges over the present day aftershocks of slavery, which continues to advantage one group and disadvantaging another. Yet the insistence to dig in and not even consider the possibility of reparations is to elevate lesser arguments over the spirit of the gospel. Okay, here again, he's conflating law and gospel. And he somewhat concedes that Zacchaeus is the one who, who did wrong. He, he can't actually get us to reparations 
through the story of Zacchaeus. But then he kind of switches the argument a little bit subtly, okay? He conflates long gospel, and then let me go back to the, the slide there at the ending. In the end, he says at the last line, reparations are a cheap price to pay for true Christian unity. So now he's saying if you don't pay reparations, there can't be unity. This strikes me as like, well, I know that people are going to say Zacchaeus is just a story about individuals, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But if you don't get on board with the, with supporting reparations, then we can't have unity. This kind of strikes me as, as troubling. It, it, it is a bit of a shift in the conversation, I think, that makes the case shift from, well, let me give you my reasons why Zacchaeus is the biblical warrant for, for reparations to an appeal to guilt or an appeal to pity is what we call in, in logic. And that's, that's an informal fallacy. But he also wants to shift the conversation about reparations to being a gospel issue. And I see this happen all the time in a lot of Christian social justice conversations is they, they want to attach nearly everything to be a gospel issue. And who wants to deny the gospel? I, I don't want to be a gospel denier, but it's, it's this kind of shell game that they, that they play. And so there's a lot of things happening in this post. There's a conflation of law and gospel there's recognition, well, Zacchaeus is really just telling us a story about an individual sin, but then there's the shift to, well, we can't really have unity until we get to reparations. It's, it's an interesting way to, to unfold his argument, but he arrives at this conclusion that reparations is a cheap price to pay for unity. Okay, let's keep going here. He says, on the other side of the table sit my African-American siblings. I genuinely feel we are owed more than an apology. Uh, something more than statements and apologies needs to be done. I believe in reparations. So this is where he's, he's really wanting us to go, is to arrive at reparations. So even though he said early in the article that he would not withhold Christian unity over reparations, which I greatly appreciate, and, and he was wanting to make his case for reparations. Here he seems to kind of sort of maybe take that back because he he says he genuinely feels blacks are owed more than an apology and that he believes in reparations. However, and I think this is this is a very important point and I appreciate this point, the gospel will not allow me to wait on reparations in order to dispense forgiveness and love. A failure to love ones who have wronged you is the decision to remain in bondage. This is the uncomfortable, equitable truth of the gospel. The same gospel which would compel our white siblings to go above and beyond also says to the descendants of African involuntary diaspora to go the extra mile. So he's kind of saying, yes, blacks should fight for justice and whites need to get on board with, with reparations. So it kind of sounds to me like this type of a scenario that he's thinking of like a situation where you might have a friend who borrows money from you uh, for $300 or something and, and they never pay you back, but you're trying to be the bigger person and, and you're trying to forgive them and, and move on. But you know, in your heart, that person still, still owes you money. And so what Loretz is saying is that he really wants to extend 
forgiveness. He will extend forgiveness, but he won't really take the other Christians seriously, the white Christian seriously, who isn't ready to repent and demonstrate their repentance through reparations. And that's how that kind of functionally sounds to me. Um, and when I hear Christians of this orientation get to this point in the conversation, they'll often appeal to Matthew 5.23 as a warrant for their position. They'll, they'll say things like, well, if you know that your brother has an offense with you, you need to go resolve that. You need to go be reconciled to them. Otherwise, God will not accept your worship then you will basically get destroyed. (laughs) And so the Christian reparations advocates will point to this warning in Matthew 5 as implying that worship without reconciliation is unacceptable to God. So if white Christians fail to reconcile completely with our black brothers and sisters via real, tangible, costly repentance, acts of repentance, such as reparations, then God may be actually discounting our worship. He may be turning away from us. He may actually be be judging us. Okay, we're going to go to the last slide here, I believe, on the article. So back to the table. White brothers and sisters, may your love for we as African-Americans outpace your defensiveness as you have, you may have against reparations. It's a small price to pay for reconciliation, is it not? So Christian reparations advocates will say that the only way you can come to the table is if you are ready to pay those reparations. And again, Loritz calls it a very small price to pay. The way I see it is, it's kind of like, okay, we concede that, yeah, technically at the cross, we have unity, but then they're functionally setting up this kind of man-made barrier of redividing the body, something that is already united in, in the Holy Spirit through the death of Christ. Because they're waiting for white Christians to get on board with reparations and then and then true unity and, and racial reconciliation in the body of Christ can happen. But until then, it will be hindered, if not withheld by some. Now, Loritz isn't advocating withholding unity, but he is trying to appeal to white Christians to, look, if you really want unity, then here's what you need to do. Now, If we were talking about the generation after the Civil War, I could more easily see that the case for reparations and using this this passage from Zacchaeus. I mean, there is a portion of the population of our country who who did build wealth on the backs of slaves. And, And I think it's important to notice what God's standard of justice is when it comes to the release of slaves. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 12, says, If any of you, pe- your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally with your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give them as to the Lord as, as the Lord has blessed you. Remember when you were slaves in Egypt, the Lord God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. This is very important. So it's very similar. It harkens us back to General Sherman's 40 acres and our mule. Slavery has an end, according to scripture, although American slavery certainly violated many of God's laws, and I'm not, it's not the purpose of this communication tonight. We still see the, God's heart for the former slave. 
freedom for slaves came after a maximum of, of six years. You couldn't have lifetime slavery. You couldn't be man-snatched or kidnapped and forced into slavery. Those, those scenarios would violate God's law. Uh, slavery had a maximum shelf life of six years, and the the owner was was required if you wanted to be a holy person, if you wanted to be a righteous person, you were to generously help your former slave start a new life with an array of provisions to help them be able to sustain themselves. Being able to sustain yourself is is a big part of of God's God's law. So in this sense, if President Johnson in the 1860s had followed the, the biblical example of what we see in the Mosaic Law, we, we actually might not be in this situation right now. Um, and I think that's important to, to recognize. But, but this brings us to the rather difficult situation of applying the Zacchaeus story to our modern context because Zacchaeus repaid the people he had directly wronged. And Brian Loritz basically acknowledges that, that God's standard of justice is about paying people back that were directly wronged by my actions. And, and that's not the situation that we're in right now. I think the difficulty here is that a lot of people have died. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of intermarriage. There, uh, there's been a lot of industrialization immigration, the world is, has changed since the 1860s. And we've, we've seen a lot of generations, and this is where I think the, the use of the Zacchaeus story as, as a warrant for reparations begins to break down in terms of its usefulness for the reparations movement. I just don't think it can do all the heavy lifting that the Christian reparations people are, are wanting it to do. There's just... Nothing in the text here that, that we've just looked at in some detail that requires someone to pay another person for theft committed by previous generations. Um, in fact, there are specific scriptures that say that the children will not be held guilty for the sins of their fathers. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says parents are not to be put to death for their children nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. We see this kind of repeated by Jesus, that people will become children of Abraham because they believe in Jesus. It won't be enough to have your parents just be Jewish. You have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So there, there are scriptures that actually say God holds people responsible for the sins of their fathers under the old covenant, but that's God holds them responsible. When we as human judges punish each other, the case law is that children cannot be held guilty for the sins of their fathers or vice versa. Whatever debts remain outstanding are canceled after seven years. So even if someone owes debts um, under the Mosaic law after seven years, those debts are forgiven. Uh, it talks about that in Deuteronomy chapter 15. You know, we, our, our debts don't come down to our children our sins don't come down to our children. So God seems to know, he's so gracious. He seems to know that sometimes we just need a do-over. We are such sinful creatures, and he graciously provides for that. And under the new covenant, I think this is why we're all, there's so much conversation in the new covenant about being generous in our forgiveness. In my view, the lack of, of 
biblical warrant for multi-generational guilt is a significant problem for the biblical case for the current Christian reparations movement. Now, if you want to think more about these things, my friends Neil Shenvey and Pat Sawyer have written an extended article on this issue. So I'm just going to refer you to that as an additional resource. So the third point I want to make here about Zacchaeus is that we see in Zacchaeus's response, it, it, it really springs from his heart. It's rooted in his desire to repent from his sin and obey God's law. It's not the result of a massive government tax, nor is it, uh, does God's law require the money be taken from one group of people who are rich and redistributed to another group of people. Rather, God's standard of justice um, required thieves to pay restitution. Restitution is not the same thing as the modern concept of multi-generational reparations. Now, often in the conversation, you'll hear people and they'll try to collapse these two ideas, but it's not really the same thing. Restitution is the biblical idea of repaying the wronged party directly. And that's, again, not what reparations advocates are saying. Modern reparations advocates want one group to pay another group based largely on skin color, not exclusively, but largely on skin color for actions of a third group who wronged a fourth group. That is not the biblical idea of restitution. So all of that said, I do want to make one additional point here. And I think that although I don't, I'm not persuaded that a case can be made for uh, biblically for reparations, I, I don't want to imply that Christians should simply wash their hands of the discussion about reparations. I'm not an advocate for government reparations because reparations implies repair and healing. And I'm I'm just not persuaded that the problem of racial division in our country would actually be solved with money. Will money, will checks, will cashing checks bring an end to the disparities between Blacks and whites. Um, will will that really bring repair and healing? Will will money help us reach the post racial utopia that we're looking for? Maybe, but I, I just am being honest. I, I'm a bit of a skeptic about that. But I do hear the the pain and the desire for recognition of like, hey, here's a wrong that was done. Um, and I do think that Christians ought to engage in more conversations about how they can provide partnership and support to those communities that continue to struggle, especially due to redlining and the lingering effects of that and, and any spaces for that matter where poor are struggling. And I think that that help can come in a variety of ways. Again, I'm, I'm not a huge advocate of more government programs and more taxes, I actually think that local private solutions will be more effective and make our dollars go farther. I think it's perfectly important and warranted for Christians to engage in conversations of what they can do in their communities, what they can do through the advocacy of small establishment of small businesses. Um, microloans, helping churches start alternative schools, uh, improving the quality of education in the neighborhood, sponsoring classes on job mentoring and creating new companies and job opportunities. Churches can provide, I think, help with transitional housing and mentoring to those people who have been incarcerated and, and providing 
father figures for these people and providing mentorship and discipleship, providing for group homes founded on on principles of human dignity for the mentally ill and the handicapped. There are many, many things that local churches could be doing and should be doing to reach into those spaces that need help. But all of these things can be done on an individual level. I think that 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 is important, that what makes Zacchaeus's response so amazing is that it sprang from his heart, from a conviction. It wasn't, well, I voted for this politician so he could he could take these taxes and, and redistribute it to these people over here. What makes it holy in scripture is, is the idea of self-governance that, that I, in a conversation with the Holy Spirit, have a level of conviction and he leads me to do things in my, in my world, in my family, in my local church, in my community that help to recognize and alleviate suffering and bring God's standard of justice to bear in the real world on an individual level again. And now if if someone were to find out that their wealth had been gained through theft or unjust means in a previous generation, and if that person wanted to do something tangible to repay the people who were directly harmed or their, or their descendants, their grandchildren, or if they wanted to sell an asset that maybe benefited because of redlining and they, they know that, uh, the Holy Spirit convicts them of that and they want to donate that money to help a group that helps to lift the descendants of slaves out of poverty, then, then great, by all means, do that. That is a great example of following in the footsteps of Zacchaeus. It's to use your personal assets by your own free will decision in response to the Holy Spirit to help others around you and to right a wrong. And and that is something to definitely get into a conversation with the Lord about. But can I make the case from scripture for large-scale government reparations program? Now, I just don't think Zacchaeus can, can do that heavy lifting for us. If a Christian wants to sell an asset and donate it, great, sure, do that. Do whatever the Lord leads you to do. Should churches consider how they can partner with other churches to build long-term opportunities for real change in impoverished areas. Should Christians consider partnership and with the power of the Holy Spirit, give sacrificially to others? Definitely. That's a worthy goal. All of those things are good. So hopefully this has been helpful. What have we accomplished tonight? We looked in detail at the Zacchaeus narrative. We also looked at the surrounding context. We considered the question of, of whether or not the Zacchaeus story can be used as a support for multi generational reparations. And again, I would say the answer is no. Generational payback for theft is not in the context of the Zacchaeus story. I don't think it's in context in, in the context of scripture in general. If we want to have a separate national conversation about reparations, I think it's a different, it's a different thing. <laughs> but I don't think we can get there biblically. I know this has been long. It's it's my hope that by being detailed, I'm modeling for you how to properly interpret scripture, how to build a bridge to our modern context with the hope that you can uh, can begin to do this kind of work yourself and ask yourself, you know, for yourself, what does the text actually say? What is the surrounding context? So I hope this has been helpful to you and I thank you for watching. Good night and God bless. 
Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.